There's nothing like finding exactly what you need when you need it, right? You know that feeling. It's when you have one foot out the door, you forget the car keys, but then find them right on the kitchen table where you left them. It's like when you're trying to locate the TV remote and spot it right within reach on the coffee table. No fuss, no hassle. Just easy and convenient. Turns out most consumers want that for their online shopping. No one wants to go on a deep dive web search to find what they want. No one wants to find themselves in a scrolling frenzy. Besides, the internet is supposed to be convenient. It shouldn't feel like walking through virtual aisles of a store. Consumers want to be able to find what they're looking for, purchase, and move on to the next thing. Platforms like Amazon prioritize this consumer need. When you want something, typing it into the search bar and getting the best options minimalizes all the search time. It makes a platform like Amazon desirable to online shoppers. Furthermore, it makes Amazon more desirable to companies with products to sell. You know, with 50% of all e-commerce sales online occurring at Amazon, that's just where everybody goes. And it's something like 75 to 80% of all search starts there now for consumer products instead of on Google. So you can imagine it's going to be hard for a Sears or a Rakuten or eBay or anybody else to really compete with Amazon when all the eyeballs are there, you know, right now. A lot of e-commerce companies value the principles and convenience of being an FBA. But it begs the question, what kind of value do FBAs bring to the table when it's time to sell? I'm your host, Randall Silvey, and this is Deal Closers, a tech and internet M&A discussion. In our last episode, we talked to Jason and Ron from WebsiteClosers.com about the basics of companies that are fulfilled by Amazon. They're known as FBAs. In today's show, we go a little more in-depth about the values these companies bring when it's time to sell. How can some FBAs differ from each other? For example, can you have FBA companies that operate solely on the Amazon platform and others that use multiple online platforms to sell? Yeah, you know, because there's so much traffic going to the Amazon platform right now, one of the things that a lot of our clients are doing is setting up Shopify stores. It's their own website where they can, you know, do more of a brand identity. They're not really focused on sales on that platform. In fact, most of them will link them right back to their Amazon storefront because Amazon's going to be the one fulfilling anyway. But certainly having a Shopify store is pretty commonplace for someone who's primarily selling on the Amazon platform. You know, 99.9% of sales happen on Amazon, and then they'll have a few sales, you know, every now and then on their platform. And most of them are not marketing for it. They're not doing a whole lot. That doesn't represent all of them, but certainly a lot of them. And then, you know, certainly others will go into places like Walmart, and Walmart still has not become much of a player with respect to third-party sellers. They're trying, and, you know, they're doing some things, even in the mastermind groups that we attend, where we see them getting more involved and getting people interested in selling on the platform, but that's just not where the traffic is. Depending on the type of product it is, you know, they may also do well on, on a place like Etsy. We certainly see a lot of stores where a mix of their sales are occurring there. And so that can be nice. Anytime you can show a mix, that's helpful. And anytime that we can show a mix in general off of Amazon, everybody gets a little bit more interested in it. As an example, we've got, you know, several clients that will be roughly 50% Amazon, 50% their site and their sites being driven by influencers and marketing in the Facebook and Instagram medium. And by going and sort of creating that mix, it becomes a much more valuable company because you've truly then created a brand 
with this awareness that's occurring in the social space. Whereas with just an only Amazon company, while still easily sellable, doesn't quite have the branding yet off of that platform. And so what a lot of our clients are doing is they're doing exactly that. They're buying these companies that have grown on Amazon and they're taking them off of Amazon into you know, where they have a little bit more expertise, whether it be web sales, maybe it's retail sales on shelves. They may have experience with that. Maybe they're, you know, they specialize in Facebook advertising, whatever it might be. There's a lot of groups out there that are looking to use the velocity and the cash flow created by what's occurring on the Amazon platform and other places. What are some of the things that you guys do at WebsiteClosers.com that sets you apart from other companies that sell FBAs? Our differentiator at Website Closers is one of enterprise value. So we position ourselves as one that wants to push the highest possible multiples on a business. We're not looking to sell a company quickly. We want to sell it for the highest possible value. And so what that means is that we end up passing on a lot of companies that come our way because we don't feel like we can, you know, do much with them. If they're dropping in sales or, you know, they've lost a bunch of ASINs recently and there's just some really bad things going on with the business and it needs to be turned around, that probably isn't going to be a good one to bring to us. There's certainly some other folks out there that will work on those deals, but that's not our core competency. We want the fast growth, you know, high flying companies that we can go out there and really elicit great offers for at, at really high multiples. So that's very much a differentiator for us. In fact, you know, as we're preparing these businesses into the marketplace, and sometimes it can take months, quarters, years to help prepare them. But as we're doing that, our sole focus is how can we position this in the light most favorable to the marketplace? And how are we going to get the very largest possible deal? And, you know, sometimes that means waiting and, you know, let's get A, B and C in order first and then take it to market. Or sometimes it looks so good, you know, right then and there, it's time to maybe even work off of a projection and, and look at, you know, maybe a discounted cash flow model for, for this particular business. And each and every one of them are different, but our focus always is how do we maximize the deal? And we know that's what our clients want. And so, you know, that's why we position ourselves that way. We're not just looking to sell a business. We're looking to max it out. This approach to FBAs allows dealers at WebsiteClosers.com to be hands-on throughout the entire selling process. From the beginning, you know, everything we do is much better, I think, than anyone else in the industry. Start with the memos, for example. On our memorandums, we don't go into long memorandums. You know, there's not 50 pages or anything like that. They tend to be 10 to 15, but every inch of them is tight. We give the details of the companies that the buyers want, the meat and bones. When it comes to the financials, we won't release a company until we're convinced that they have, you know, really tight financials that have been scrutinized by us and by their accountants. So we feel pretty comfortable when we submit these to the buyers, not just the buyers, but the banks. The banks need to see something that they feel is credible, that makes sense, that they can understand. As a matter of fact, earlier today, we were on a call with a group and we have several offers for this company in the eight-figure range. We were on with their accountant and we were discussing how exactly you know everything should be presented because it needs to be as professional as possible, as tight as possible. We know where the due diligence is coming in. And so, you know, we're able to advise them, you know, whether it's going to be cash or accrual. If they were, you know, most of these companies start small, they go with cash, but at some point they have to convert to accrual. So each step of the way, we tell them when and why. From beginning to end, you know, we have a massive buyer pool. We're 
100% different than our competitors because of our sheer size and expertise. Yeah, and I would add a couple more things there as far as differentiating factors go. First, one of the ways where we win over a lot of competitors is that we do what our clients do every day. We own and operate a number of e-commerce companies that operate, you know, their own websites. They also operate on Amazon. So, you know, we feed our kids the same way our clients feed their kids every day. And if you're going to represent a company the right way, you need to understand how it works. And you also need to be able to explain how it works to debt and equity investors in the, in the back end of a deal. Because a lot of folks still don't understand what is a third-party seller? You know, what is this asset? You know, how do they operate? We'll go to banks and teach them you know, what these are. And we've done that a number of times where we're actually, you know, showing them what it's like to sell on the platform, what it means, why the asset has value and those kinds of things. And that you don't really get with a guy on the corner trying to sell, you know, restaurants. It's just not the same. It's completely different. So that positions us differently. Even for those that are in our space, there's very few that actually do e-commerce operations as well. And that's a big differentiating factor when, you know, we do the same thing all the time. This strategy is helpful not only to the seller side, but on the side of the buyer as well. The entire process of closing deals with FBA companies can fluctuate because of the market. This hands-on approach allows for proper expectations to be set. Is it common for companies to sell while they're transitioning into or out of being an FBA business? Yeah, not really anymore. You know, years and years ago, when FBA was kind of becoming more of a presence with Amazon, that was the case. Yes, we were seeing a lot of people transitioning. That was also happening with the Vendor Central program where people were sort of testing that out to see if they could increase their velocity and ranking on the A9 platform at Amazon by, you know, having some ASINs on the Vendor Central program. But, you know, it turned out that that didn't end up being that good of a deal. But all of those sort of transitionings were happening back then. You know, now, you know, anybody that's doing well on the platform, they're sending all of their product to Amazon FBA and having them manage it. And so that's pretty much the standard now. You're not going to really see somebody in the middle of that kind of a transition but, you know, right now we're talking about Amazon companies, but of course, that's not the only kind of tech company out there. We represent a lot of tech companies and a lot of different kinds of e-commerce companies, not just Amazon. So there's certainly a lot of clients we have that only sell on their website. And there's, you know, one that we just actually launched today, I think, that's 100% organic traffic. And so that could be valuable too. You know, if you're not on Amazon... Or if you are on Amazon and all of your traffic's coming organically and you're not doing any sort of PPC or other paid media outlook for that particular brand, then you know that can be nice too. And that's a transitional opportunity for someone coming in, especially if they know PPC well. If all the traffic is organic and somebody can come in and add you know, all that additional traffic through paid search, then you can double the size of a company quickly. I understand it's relatively difficult to transition an Amazon account. What has been your experience with that? Yeah, good question. It's changed a lot over the years. You know, when Ron and I were selling these companies a long time ago, we actually had to sell them as stock transactions because there wasn't an easy way to change an account in the back end. That's completely changed in the recent years. Now you can kind of log in and change your legal entity. When you do change your legal entity, the platform will issue a 1099 immediately on the change to the old owner. Then at the end of the year, a new 1099 will be issued for the new legal entity. 
And then, you know, once you go through the process of the transition, which we usually get on the phone and walk people through best practices for how to do that. And there are some certain things you want to do to make sure you get that right. But once you go through that process, you know, you're going to go through a tax nexus form. Obviously, the buyer and the seller are going to have different tax nexus. And that's changing a little bit as, you know, the wafer decision sort of changing everything for everybody. But there's still going to be a pretty good chance that there's going to be different tax nexus for the new person coming on. So Amazon sort of changed that process a few years back where now it's nice and easy for you to transition away. And then obviously you have to change the bank account information and a few other things. But there's some particular ways that you want to make sure you do it. And again, we walk our clients through that process when doing it. But it's important to note that, you know, there's been some questions out there, you know, is this against, you know, terms of service at Amazon, et cetera. And we like to make sure people are aware that we're not selling Amazon accounts here. No one has the right or ownership in an Amazon account, just like you don't have ownership in a Facebook account or a Gmail account. But those things get transitioned, you know, when you sell a company. And so the company has the right to operate on Amazon. The company has the right to, you know, its Gmail account and whatever else, you know, it has as far as other third-party platforms it operates on, but it's not, you know, we're not selling that actual account. And so we're just transitioning a company that operates on the platform to another that operates on the platform. And, you know, that happens a lot. You know, obviously there's millions of accounts on the platform, so it's happening every day. And I think Amazon realized that, and that's why they made the change to make it a little bit easier for that transition. Things are easier than they used to be, but there's still room for complications. After all, there are people behind these businesses, and people are complicated. What expectations are set when an FBA company wants to sell? That varies a great deal because there's all different kinds of sellers out there. You know, there's some guys that come in and they say, look, I just want out. I mean, I am stressed to the max. I'm constantly worried about, you know, ASINs going down or, you know, cash flow constraints because we're growing so fast and I don't have the cash to deal with it. You know, you've got those guys that just want you to, you know, get it in and get it out. And that's completely different from someone else who might just be testing the waters these guys are just putting their toes in the water to sort of see, you know, what's out there and what the multiples are and, you know, whether or not, you know, someone's willing to pay them what they can get for the business. And then you've got, you know, maybe a third kind of seller who definitely wants to sell, but they're going to hold out to get exactly what they want. And so it's important for us as intermediaries to manage expectations tightly throughout the process because, as you can imagine, what a seller wants for a business and what a buyer is willing to pay are sometimes two completely different things. And there's ways to manage that process with structure. But it's really important that you know, you're managing expectations through not just up front, but throughout the process, because you can quickly go astray if you're not managing that process. And Ron, you probably got a couple of thoughts on that, too. I do. Actually, I think there's a lot of irony in one of the comments that Jason just made, because you talk about, you know, the stress factors of, you know, sellers and when we're talking about expectations and everything. And one of the problems in our sector is growth. I mean, pretty much any business in America would love to have growth as a problem. In our sector, the problem is that they grow so quickly that all the inventory they need 
they can sell. There's that amount of massive you know, purchasing power that's out there available to buy your products. Unlike, say, a store in a mall, which has X amount of people a day come in and they pretty much know the volume they're going to do. And if they get 5% growth on an annual year, they're going to be extremely happy. In the internet sector, in e-commerce, it's amazing what we see because you know, these companies just grow so quickly that, you know, everyone fears running out of product. And it actually is a problem, a great problem to have because, you know, obviously the buyer comes in and a lot of them are pretty well healed and they're able to accommodate the additional needs of the investment that you would need to actually grow in this sector. So I think it's kind of funny when you talk about massive growth as being a problem because it's an attribute I think almost any business person would love to have. Yeah. And I think another thing to add on to that is the other kind of discrepancies between sellers are those that want to stay on board and those that don't. And Ron and I, when we're running a deal, you know, we'll start coaching a client early on to be as flexible as possible here. And one of the main reasons for that is that, you know, as an example, if this is an Amazon company that we're selling, you know, the skills necessary to rank product on that platform are very particular. It's not like you can, you know, go out on Indeed and find somebody with a resume that can do these things. Because if you can, you're going to pay a million a year to do it because these guys are highly, highly specialized. And so one of the things you're getting when you buy a company like this is a platform and that comes with the, you know, the seller. And so depending on the size of the business, you know, there can be a number of different structures for a seller after closing. You know, as an example, you know, in some situations, your seller might just, you know, be involved for a transition. That transition can be two, three, or four weeks. Other cases, they might stay on as a consultant, you know, so maybe they do the transition for four weeks. And then after that, for maybe six weeks, you know, they're available as necessary for phone calls, et cetera, to consult on, you know, things like new product launches, R&D for opportunities, or if an issue comes up, you know, dealing with that if it happens. And another kind, which we see on most of our deals over $10 million, is when the seller is asked to stay involved and either continue running the company or be highly involved on the Amazon side of that business as it grows. And so what you see for those kinds of sellers is usually a buyer's going to come in and say, hey, you know, we want to buy this company, but we'd like you to maintain some ownership. So you know, they'll roll equity in the deal of maybe 10, 20, 30% and they're getting you know, paid 70, 80, 90% at closing, and they'll have the opportunity for the second exit. So that sort of incentivizes them to stay involved in the deal after closing to help them grow the company. And what you'll see a lot of times is because they have, they're so centric with Amazon, they know the Amazon platform so well, that the buyer, you know, whether it's a private equity group or a family office, or maybe it's a roll-up company or a brand company, you know, they have all these relationships outside of Amazon. And so they're now able to help them grow this brand in a, in a whole different direction while the owner of the company continues to operate it on Amazon. And so they become sort of partners in the process, and then they have a second exit down the road. So a company that sells for, you know, as an example, $10 million, and it had $2 million in earnings. Well, when you get into this partnership relationship, it might go from $2 million of earnings to $10 million of earnings. And then it sells for, say, $60 million down the road. Well, if you kept 20% of the company, you just exited for more or potentially more than you did initially. And those are the kinds of opportunities that a lot of these guys are getting really excited about where 
they can get partnered with you know these other folks that have been really good about building brands outside of Amazon. They can build the brand outside of Amazon. They'll have the backing of capital, you know, networking, relationships, all the things it takes to be successful outside of Amazon. They'll now have that as a partner. Plus, they took you know money off the table. They took the risk out of the deal because you know now all the risk shifts to the owner of the company, who now has to deal with the cash flow constraints associated with growing an Amazon company. They're the ones you know injecting capital into the company, etc. Yet the equity that you've got stays the same. You know it's usually not a diluted asset, and so that's where you know these sellers, as long as you manage expectations with them, they'll continue to be excited about staying involved as long as they don't feel like it's going to be a job where they're reporting to someone every day because these, are, after all, are entrepreneurs. But as long as they feel confident that they're going to be able to continue to do this at a high level and not do all the low-level operational stuff that they probably were doing before, they're going to get excited about partnering up with someone to, to blow this company up. Yeah, and discussing skills from the uh, seller sector, it's kind of interesting because the smart business people out there know that e-commerce has a very big future ahead of it. It's pretty much in its infancy right now, and there's nothing but growth ahead. And finding those skills to be able to bring a product to the top of Amazon on page one are kind of few and far between. The sellers have that ability. Now, they grow these companies you know, at a speed that is just astounding. And what happens is they get to a point where the growth actually scares them, you know, because they begin to realize that they need more employees, an administrative team, you know, all the things that in business are taken for granted, but it, it's not their skill set. And so a lot of these buyers that come in, they have that skill set that they're able to provide, but what they can't replicate is the skills of the actual behind the scenes on the internet. So it really becomes a perfect blend between buyer and seller. What are some common misconceptions you've seen on the behalf of FBA sellers? One misconception just in general for mergers and acquisitions is that, you know, guys will go out and look online to see what kind of multiples are being paid for businesses. And, you know, most of the information out there for these companies are publicly traded companies. And of course, you know, those are traded on, you know, future earnings. They're traded on very high multiples, usually over 10 times. And, you know, that's a whole different scenario than what a company like a lower middle market or an SMB company is going to trade for. And so a lot of times we are sort of having that battle up front with a client where they've done this research, they see what's out there, and we're kind of telling them the way it really is. And while we're always pushing for the highest multiples, of course, you're only going to be able to push so hard. And there's not going to be anybody in the buyer pool left if you push and go too high. And so, you know, that's certainly a misconception that we see a lot of times where, you know, a guy will come in and say, hey, I understand that, you know, you multiply off of revenue and not off of earnings. That is the case in the, in the example of a, you know, highly sticky, long LTV SaaS company. But for an e-commerce company, you know, it's always going to be on earnings. And of course, that's because there's a, an inventory element to the business and the cash flow is going to be extremely important in that scenario. And so that is a problem that we see a lot of times. And I will say another misconception that we see or misperception that we see a lot of times would be owners that believe that they can just sell the company and move on, that they can just kind of toss the keys and they're done. 
And that, you know, may be possible for a small company. You know, if you're selling a company for $500,000 or a million, you know, after you do a, a nice transition, that's probably doable. You know, maybe a very short consulting period when you need help. But for really small companies, that's possible. But when you get up to the, you know, three, four, five, 10, 20, $50 million range for these companies, it becomes a whole different scenario where, you know, you've got people depending on you as an owner to continue after closing to help you know, with this process. Now, of course, sometimes there are buyers out there that already have those skills internal because they've either acquired other companies or, you know, maybe they too already operate on the platform. But, you know, for the most part, they're looking for you to stay on board and help them through that process. And, and certainly that can be, you know, something where we have to manage expectations close for a seller who hasn't really thought about that. There can be a lot of hoops and hurdles when it comes to FBA deals. However, to combat that, we return to this hands-on approach. It's useful and it works. What I mentioned earlier about having the understanding on the operational side is really key where you know these guys are going to have lots of questions about how this business works. They've never done it before. And you got to be there to sort of help the buyer through that process. And so we're introducing them to banks. We're introducing them to lenders and private lenders out in the space that are interested in working in tech and internet companies. And we're helping them package these deals together in the right way so that, you know, we're not going to be delayed down the road. And we do a lot of follow-ups and uh, so forth with the lenders to make sure that everything's going the way that it's supposed to be going. We basically control the entire process. And I think buyers like that, you know, they don't want to just be out there trying to run a deal on their own because they've never done this before. The vast majority of these buyers, they know that they need a bank, but they've never done this before. And by having us, you know, there with them, where they feel like we're a partner for them, walking, hand-holding them through the process, it becomes a lot easier for them and they get more encouraged to do the deal. Thanks to Jason and Ron for taking the time to talk to me. Feel free to send us any questions you have about mergers and acquisitions. We'd be happy to explore the answers. Till next time, this has been the Deal Closers Podcast.